Welcome to the GRF On The Go podcast. The subject matter experts at GRF CPAs and Advisors created this podcast to offer insights on current topics, as well as new ideas and best practices that your team can apply today. This podcast was originally presented as a live webinar. CPE information provided during the podcast is no longer valid, but if you're interested in watching the video version of this session or accessing the slide deck, visit our website at grfcpa.com forward slash events. Enjoy the episode and remember to subscribe for future content. Okay, it's 11 o'clock, so I'll go ahead and get us started. Hello, everybody. I want to welcome everyone participating in today's webinar, Secure Act 2.0, How the Act Will Impact Your Retirement Plan. My name is Andrew Dial, and I'm an audit manager here at GRF. I will be today's session moderator. We are joined by Jennifer McCahill and Andrew Remo. Jennifer is an audit partner here at GRF, and Andrew is the Director of Legislative Affairs at the American Retirement Association. Together, they specialize in retirement plan logistics and new legislation. Great. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, as Andrew mentioned, I'm Jen McCahill. I'm one of the partners here at GRF. So please, you could join us today to talk about some of the changes we'll be seeing to everyone's retirement plan as a result of Secure 2.0. And a big thank you to my co-presenter, Andy Remo uh, from ARA, who graciously accepted and just so happens that doing a webinar with his auditor was on his bucket list. So I'm glad this is mutually beneficial for us. So thank you to Andy for joining us today. All right. Glad to be here. Yes, thanks. <laughs> Welcome. Um, our agenda is relatively concise. You know, we're going to start off with just some background on the SECURE Act, um, what it means, take a dive into some of the more pre prevalent changes those immediately taking uh, effect um, as in now. Um, then we'll kind of go through the timeline of key future changes that you would need to be aware of. And throughout the presentation, you know, we'll consider um, highlighting what is a must, things that you all really need to focus on ensuring your plan is putting in place versus those that are maze um, and options for you all to consider in the future and how, how might this work in actual uh, real life, as we say, real life implementation of some of these changes. So we look forward to, to chatting through these agenda items. So before we actually get started, we would like to just open it up to the group in a polling question, take a pulse out there of um, if you're aware of some of these fundamental changes that might impact your plan under uh, Secure 2.0. So while we have this pull up, you know, um, obviously either, hey, yes, you're aware, no, you're not sure. So let's see what the results. So pretty evenly split. Um, some people are aware of some of the changes, so, but most of you actually are not aware of the changes. So very good that you're attending today. Hopefully we can give you some insight on what you can expect to see um, in the next couple of years. So let's get started. <clears throat> Go ahead for the next slide. Thanks, uh, Nathan. 
All right, just some general background of Secure 2.0. Um, so Secure is that setting every community up for retirement enhancements. Uh, this follows the original uh, Secure legislation that actually was passed back in 2019. Um, the second version of the legislation, the updates, uh, was passed uh, late in 2022, um, always last minute, December 29, 2022, and it really aims, both the, you know, the, the entire legislation really aims at addressing the retirement crisis that we have here in America with so many individuals ultimately being unprepared for retirement. So the three goals kind of that we've um, highlighted, the most obvious just being um, uh, able to allow employees to participate in a retirement plan, um, the ability for them to save for retirement, improve those retirement plan rules, maybe streamline, reduce the complexities, more easy to navigate, and lower the administrative burden, the cost on employers of setting up a retirement plan. So I know these are pretty fundamental, basic. Um, there's a lot of context behind these ultimate goals of the SECURE Act. We'll see kind of how this flows through to the actual changes throughout the presentation. The Act has over 90 actual provisions uh, that go into effect starting now through 2025 is um, a big chunk of the, the changes, but it, it also pushes um, some of the changes or plans for um, um, adjustments um, in later years. So we'll point out a couple of those that as it stands now um, could take a, in effect beyond 2025. Um, obviously we can't go over 90 provisions, so we'll just focus on the things that we think are most prevalent, most relevant, the ones that we have the most questions come up about. Um, so we'll focus on some of the more notable changes to you and your participants and employees. Yeah, just just to add a bit there too, is you know just to explain a bit of the political process. Uh, so in 2006, that was really the last you know in this in this century the sort of major retirement bill. It was called the Pension Protection Act. And so you had a gap from 2006 until 2019, where there really wasn't a whole lot of major action in Congress on retirement legislation. And then in 2019, you know, the, it, 2016 was, was really the effort to start pulling together, some might describe as a hodgepodge of improvements around the edges of the system and, and you know, develop ideas to, you know, incent small businesses to offer a retirement plan through work. And that resulted in the secure two point, uh, secure, the original secure act, which was sort of roughly around 45 to 50 provisions. And so it was a three-year process, but they really, um, you know, once they put a bill out there that, that had wide, widespread bipartisan support in like 2016, the pens were down and the, and, the, and the bill was sort of walled off. And so you couldn't really add anything to it. So there was a sort of pent up demand, uh, even though Secure 1.0 passed in 19, to uh, you know, add more ideas. So they were already working on the second version of it while trying to get the first one done, which took a bit, a bit longer than anticipated. So you ended up with a bill that's twice as large as the first one. And um, you know, I think at this point, we're pretty much set, at least for the foreseeable future, with respect to uh, new retirement policy. 
Great, thanks, Andy. All right, um, let's kick it off with some of the immediate changes. So we've highlighted the most uh, notable items that are effective immediately. What must you all focus on on the the now? Um, the first item, while we don't think it it's relatively prevalent, we did want to make a note. It um, relates to those qualified birth or adoption distributions. And so employers have always had the, have already had the option of um, um, allowing their plan to issue distributions, um, you know, early distributions on penalty distributions, I believe up to 5K for the benefit of the birth or adoption of a child. Um, and under the original legislation, there was actually no uh, guidance on whether you could recontribute those funds. You could recontribute those funds, but there was no guidance on a time period on whether you had to recontribute those funds back into the plan at a later date. Um, and so 2.0 actually set a timeline for recontribution of those previously distributed funds, should you have taken an early distribution for um, the QBOAD. And so now it's a three-year time period that you have to be able to re, um, recontribute those funds back into the plan from the time the distribution was taken. So again, we don't think you know a lot of um, this might impact a lot of you, but we did want to make note of this since this is one of those changes that um, that is immediate. And if this is uh, um, specific to your plan, you know, you would just want to work with your um, plan administrator and your CPA to make sure that anyone who has one of these outstanding, they're aware of um, their options under the recontribution under the new legislation. Yeah, I mean, as, as Jen mentioned here, this is without a time limit to repay the funds, it would be the reason why many plan sponsors wouldn't adopt this is it was uncertainty. I mean, you didn't want to have to put this in your plan and then 30 years down the line, somebody tries to say, hey, I took this distribution. I want to recontribute this back to the plan. That would be an administrative nightmare for employers. Um, so this is, uh, you know, this was designed to be a, a plan sponsor friendly measure to put clear rules on recontributions in order to spur more adoption of this, of this distribution. So the next item we have here is related to the required minimum distributions. And you'll probably recall that the age actually increased under um, the original secure legislation from 70 and a half to a 72. So I feel like that increase just took place. And yet here we are looking at um, another increase in uh, January 1 of this year that we're currently in to 73. So the, the way the legislation is currently written, um, there is actually another increase set for 2033 as well, up to 75. So they planned for just you know the aging population and um, how that would impact those required minimum distributions. So this one gets a little funky. Um, just if you have participants in the plan, you know, teetering between that 72, 73 age and the changing in the guidance over the years, um, you know, the 
we could certainly provide some some hard cutoff dates and tables. There are some hard cutoffs, and it does relate. Um, it is based on the actual employee's birthday, so there is um, you know hard cutoffs on that. And um, I know there's some additional guidance on just the tables that you could use to make sure that you notified any of your employees that this might impact in shifting their ultimate required minimum distributions from one year to the next as as the last three years we see um, several changes in the the age here so we wanted to point that out and bring that to your attention yeah I think the the important part to note here is if you already triggered your RMD requirements you have to continue to make those. RMDs. It's not like you can yes, stop. Absolutely. So, and then, and so it's just, this is on a prospective rolling basis, the new age rules, which for younger people is great. Uh, but if you already, you know, and I mean, even before, thank, thank God they got rid of the 70 and a half rule, because that was about as confusing as it gets in the secure 1.0. Um, and now they just sort of gradually raised up the age here in the secure 2.0. But if you're already taking an RMD, you still have to take an RMD. Um, it's only when you don't have to is sort of when you have to figure out when you start and need to start. And so the final item that we just wanted to touch on here are some new rules on correcting overpayments. Um, you know, the there's always been this um, fiduciary responsibility of the plan sponsor to go and try and, um, you know, claw back instances where the plan may have paid out too much. Um, a good example of that, something that we've seen in numerous instances, just auditing plans, um, you know, when you're uh, making distributions or your plans make a distribution, if there was any correct calculation on the vesting um, from the actual plan documents and the employee received or the previous employee received too much, um, not in, you know, more than that they were entitled to. The, the previous kind of sentiment was the employer would reach out to these employees, say, we accidentally overpaid you. Can you please give us this money back so we can put it back into the plan? You know, whether you're picking up that phone call or not is a different story. Um, and so there was always this um, sort of fiduciary responsibility to get this corrected. And if you couldn't get corrected, you know, how long are you going to have to keep trying to get this money back? Um, and so 2.0 res actually restricts the plan sponsor from recovering the excess payments um, beyond a three-year period if it's not the employee's fault, right? Um, and so, you know, this really gives some relief to the employer on um, clarifying that they're technically not, you know, non-compliant with their fiduciary responsibilities if it's beyond that three-year period and um, they were unable to get that money back to satisfy um, making the plan whole again. Yeah, this is one of those where it's sort of a, a win for the participants that, you know, benefited from, from these yeah. overpayments, but it's also, you know, uh, uh, does provide relief to the plan sponsor that they don't have to they're not deemed to be violating fiduciary duty by getting back the money into the plan. So I think it's sort of a win-win on both with, with both parties there. Yeah, definitely. All right, let's uh, see what changes. So those were kind of the immediate impact changes. So, uh, two of the more notable changes that must, um, we're highlighting must in that these are currently as they're written, 
non-options for employers to be done by the end of the year that we're in now, calendar year 2023. Uh, so the first is uh, one that, you know, there's a lot of questions out there on. It, as it stands, the legislation has put in place the fact that catch-up contributions um, plans are required to establish a Roth option for those catch-up contributions. And so just back to the basics, just a reminder what those catch-up contributions are if you're over a certain age you have the ability under the IRS to uh, contribute more to your plan than um, the standard limits of an employee under the age threshold. So you have the, ben the added benefit of contributing more as you get closer to retirement. So those catch-up contributions here, um, would uh, the employer would establish the option for those to be a Roth contribution as opposed to the traditional pre-tax contributions effective for January 1, 2024. The, the nuance here is that um, individuals earning more than $145,000 in the previous year, they would have no option. Um, as it stands, their, their catch-up contributions would be required to be raw. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of questions around that. And I know Andy can kind of give some additional light about what the, the current pulse and legislation is and answering some of these questions around this Roth option currently. Um, Andy, any insight? Yeah, sure. No, I mean, this is this is a big one. This is you know mandatory um, for everybody starting next year. There was some, there's some heartburn about the language in that, um, a technical correction might be needed because it's being interpreted at the way the the way the legislative language was written that in fact all catch-up contributions would be prohibited uh starting in 2024 so that's something that's sort of an outstanding question uh as a result of this provision but it, it you know take the step back in this provision the reason this is in here is because this is one of the biggest quote-unquote pay-fors of the entire bill like the rmd you know uh Reduce, you know, increasing the age for RMDs is a huge revenue loser for the government within the 10-year window. And so in order to offset that uh, loser as well as other revenue losers uh, provisions in the bill, they needed to, uh, and really the sort of broad brush here is to incentivize Roth savings um, on both the catch-up side and, and then we'll talk about, you know, uh, further in the presentation on the employer contribution side in order to excel, you know, for people to have more Roth savings than the taxable event it happens immediately. And that accelerates the revenue to the treasury within the 10-year budget window, which means it's a, a net revenue positive according to, just, you know, how it's scored up on the hill. So, that's really why this is in here, not because everybody like loves Roth so much, although Roth is a good savings option for, for younger workers, maybe workers with a, in a lower tax bracket, um, you know, to save through their deferrals. But it's really just to pay for, you know, the other sort of RMD uh, provisions and, and automatic enrollment provisions and the like. Thanks, Amy. And so the second item on here, what must be done um, by the end of this year is also another really hot topic, one that leaves a lot of questions um, on the table um, and how this would ultimately be 
uh, implemented in real life, but it relates to those long-term part-time employees. Um, and so again, as the legislation currently stands, any of those long-term part-time employees with 500 hours or more in three consecutive years of employment at your organization starting next year must be eligible to participate in the plan, okay? And then this gets reduced to two years starting um, the following year in that it would then be any of those long-term employees uh, with 500 hours in two consecutive years would be eligible to participate in the plan. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot of questions that come with this, particularly, you know, does this mean that they're eligible to participate in the employer matching piece? You know, we say here employer contributions, that's not a must. It, the must is the employee piece. Um, you know, what about a safe harbor plan? Again, you know, that's not really required. Um, you know, how does this impact top heavy testing and you know, if they're in the plan because they had 500 two years and then they drop, you know, do they go in and out of the plan one year to the next? You know, that's that's not the case. You know, once they're in yeah. there, they stay eligible, they continue to participate. So they could have two years of 500 hours and then never any 500 hour years again. But once they're in, they're still always going to be eligible to participate. So this you know, this one comes with a lot of additional clarifications, a lot of additional questions um, on how this would work in practicality and actuality, but uh, certainly a big change from what we um, have traditionally seen um, in, in those uh, retirement plans. Yeah, absolutely. This is, you know, the first time um, in a long time that eligibility rules under you know, the tax code in ERISA were changed uh, in order to increase coverage. And the, you know, the, the policy idea behind this was you have a whole segment of the working force that just doesn't have access to the 401k plan. So, you know, a lot of working mothers or um, part-time employees that, uh, you know, my boss used to say it was her mom used to work in, you know, a big retail store um, with the, the, in the jewelry department would only work you know, let, like 20 hours a week. And, but was, was at that retail uh, employer for, you know, decades. Um, she was never, never able to uh, be eligible to participate in the 401k plan and save. So this is sort of, uh, this idea was, was based in part on, on my boss's, my old boss's mom, and it was called the Judy, Judy's mother's provision to put in here to, to cover those types of uh, workers. Um, and, and, but, you know, th th this, this does raise a lot of, administrative questions and it's a man it's a requirement every every plan has to change their eligibility rules uh, if they haven't already because the secure 1.0 uh, put in this concept uh, for the for long-term part-time for three years and they have accelerated it under secure 2.0 but uh, this yeah this is a big one all right, um, so let's take a pause for a minute and um, do another polling question. So we've gone over kind of the immediate changes as well as the changes that should be implemented by 2023. Um, so if you could just uh, uh, answer the poll with, will any of these immediate changes impact your plan? By the end of 2023, you've got the yes, no, or 
still not sure option. So let's see, um, we have a couple. So mostly 50% of you said yes. Uh, some of you don't think these changes will impact your plan. Um, and then some still aren't sure. So that's okay. You can receive the slides after and we're happy to answer any questions if you uh, need additional guidance. So let's go to the next slide. All right, great. So we're touching on a couple more musts, um, just some final smaller items that we wanted to throw out there. Some musts that um, roll out by the end of 2025. So the first one, there is this paper statement mandate. So starting in uh, January 1, 2026, you know, you're, you're gonna be required to send one quarterly benefit statement mailed unless the participants opt out. So that's something that will be coming down the line. Um, ultimately, all these changes that we are talking about, there is a deadline for formally amending your plan. Um, that deadline has been set to the end of uh, 2025. So working with your, um, your TPAs, your um, plan administrators, uh, your attorneys um, who write the plan documents for you ensuring that once you decide what options will be rolled in, all those musts and mays um, that you've elected must be formally amended in, in the plan documents and adoption agreements by 2025. And then governmental plans just have a little longer, which I'm not sure we have anyone on here that that would impact, but um, throwing that out there. Uh, the retirement loss and savings. So this is something that we think will be coming down the line where the Department of Labor must um, has been mandated to establish an online database for any of those unclaimed benefits of beneficiaries in the ERISA plan. So, you know, we see this similar to um, the databases uh, related to the street laws and just unclaimed properties in general. And this one will be specific for those retirement benefits. So I think this is a really great addition um, and something that is desired. And then the final bullet point on here, which um, is a little bit more substantive, the fact that the legislation has put in that new plans must have an auto enrollment feature. So any new plans. Um, that come into existence uh, beyond 2025 must have that auto enrollment feature with a minimum of a 3% deferral election up to 10%. It could have an auto escalation provision in there. Um, this does have an exclusion for any new companies that are startups um, and they consider that three years or younger or any companies, existing companies with less than um, 10 employees. So there are very few exclusions for this, um, but I know that you know when we were talking about this yesterday, one of the wrinkles is that the fact that if you do set up a new plan currently in this year, 2023, um, you know, will you ultimately have to switch in 2025 when this provision becomes into, into in effect, and the answer is yes. So, you know, there is this two year kind of time gap in which, 
you know, anything that's set up now will ultimately have to switch over um, to that auto enrollment. So obviously, you know, we, we certainly are advising our clients to just go ahead and add it in there. There's no reason not to at this point. Yeah. And this is something we've just been seeing, you know, come online over the past uh, several years anyway, right? So this is the best practice. This is what more companies are moving to anyway. Um, but this just makes that push and to solidify that and again, encourage savings. Um, uh, once it's being taken out, it's easy to, you know, just forget that it's it's automatically contributing. So I think this is a great system. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, and, and really the policy just because this is another coverage issue, like the long-term part-time employee eligibility provision is how can we get the most people covered? Because, um, you know, that's really how people save for their retirement is through the workplace plan. And the data is irrefutable. I mean, it, with with automatic enrollment, participation rates go from 70% to 90% of employees. I mean, you can still opt out. Nobody's taking your freedom away to opt out if you if you don't want to. Um, but, you know, the nudge, the default is the critical sort of economic, you know, behavioral factor uh, here at play. And so that's really what Congress is wanting to do is, is, is get many people enrolled in these plans as possible and to build up a nest egg for their retirement. And the big piece of that really is, is you know, starting in 2025, you're going to have to uh, auto enroll uh, everybody into the plan. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, that's going to be, that's going to have an impact, uh, in terms of the amount of people, amount of money saved and the amount of people that are saving for retirement. Um, granted it's not, you know, I mean, there's still, you're still on the plan sponsor side, you're not required to have a plan that might be the next shoe to drop at, at some point, should the politics line up, uh, in terms of a coverage mandate on the employer. But, um, you know, should you, uh, adopt a new plan, uh, Starting now, you're going to have to switch, or you know, in 2025, you're going to have to just do it um, immediately. But you're going to have to uh, add in these autom automated features. And I just should uh, mention too on the debt on the amendment deadline. Um, IRS has been very flexible with these deadlines too. Just there's a statutory deadline. There was a statutory deadline for all the amendments for all the provisions in Secure 1.0 at the end of 2022. And IRS has been very flexible in pushing that back to 2025. So uh, I wouldn't be too anxious about, you know, getting getting this, um, you know, all the paperwork squared away. I, however, you have to be in compliance with with the law, um, whether your paperwork is is updated or not. So you have to, you know, in terms of the mandatory provisions, you know, you still have to uh, operate that, um, you know, even though it's not in the plan document, if you will. All right, so um, this is the may part, not the must. Uh, but there's a lot of a lot of provisions in here that I think a lot of plan sponsors would be curious about. And uh, you know, there are innovative plan designs, and certainly, you know, talk with your consultants if you have one or other sort of experts uh, in this space to discuss these options. And and so what what may be done immediately? Well, this is a good sort of uh, plan sponsor friendly provision in terms of self-certification for hardships. That's something that, that you know, uh, the regulated community, you know, we've been asking for for a while is to take the burden off the, off the employer to try to collect or try to document, you know, is this in fact a need? Um, and to have put that on the, uh, 
participant, put that on the employee. So if, if the IRS questions things, they have to provide that information to them, not the employer. So this is good. Um, so, you know, go ahead and put that into place. Uh, also, there's, there's um, you know, some streamlining of, of notices for certain uh, participants that are um, unenrolled. And so that's, you know, probably a pretty small subset of people, but uh, you don't have to keep sending them mailings if they're not, uh, if they're not enrolled into the plan. And then the big piece in this piece, uh, the big piece here is what I, I mentioned earlier is um, another big pay for of this bill, uh, besides the Roth catch-up mandate, is allowing employers to, uh, for the first time ever, make Roth employer contributions. Um, and so there, there is, um, you know, there is a lot of questions as to, and we, and I should just say, like, there, we haven't received any guidance to date either from the Department of Labor on, on the sort of their jurisdictional pieces or the IRS Treasury on the internal revenue code pieces on any of these items. And so many of these, you know, particularly the May items, uh, service providers aren't gonna provide a product if they don't have very uh, clear guidance from the regulatory agencies about how to structure that, that product. Um, so on some of these plan design features, they'll probably just wait for, for clear guidance on, on some of the technical details, if you will. Um, and this optional Roth treatment is one of those items. Um, so in theory, you could do it immediately and uh, maybe some uh, folks out there are, are, are doing this, um, but um, you know, if you talk to the larger record keepers, they don't have sort of the, the, um, the product ready for, for many for employers to do this, I would say. And we've, they probably won't put that into place until we get sort of guidance here because there's questions about, uh, you know, is it, does the employer have control whether they can make the uh, um, option available or can the employee sort of trigger, say, hey, I, wanted, I want my employer contributions to be Roth, so you have to do this. That's unclear. Uh, so that's a big question just among many. Anything to add, Jen, there? Oh, okay, yeah, so. Um, in terms of another thing that may, yeah, this is a good, this sort of permanent rules for natural disasters. This is a nice clarification in the tax code. I mean, you talk, you talk to a lot of folks in the tax code, you know, that are, you know, tax geeks in the tax world. And they're like, well, what's, what's your biggest uh, criticism of the tax code? And it's like, well, there's no permanent rules. A lot of stuff expires. So they, you know, we're always trying to figure out like what is going to be extended and what's going to be removed and, and vice versa. And so this is a good sort of from a tax policy perspective, permanent rule now in place for individuals should they be unfortunately subjected to, you know, FEMA natural disaster, you know, hurricane, wildfire, earthquake, you name it, uh, volcano. We can go down the list of horribles. Um, but if they're if they're deemed to be in an area that FEMA declares a, a, a you know a presidentially declared natural disaster, and the plan sponsor has these rules in place for natural disasters, then that means the the you know participant can uh, take a, a you know distribution from the plan up to twenty two thousand dollars to try to get through it and you know and and you know maybe do some repairs before their insurance policy kicks in or whatnot, uh, as well as, you know, uh, generous loan rules, which is equal to 100% of the account balance or $100,000. 
and so these permanent rules apply um, retroactively to the last time that Congress did this. Uh, you know, the first time that Congress put these um, retirement plan rules for disasters in place was after Katrina in 2005. And then they've been uh, sort of on an ad hoc basis doing it um, since then. But they're always, they're always sort of, you know, at least months, maybe a year or two after the fact. And so by that point, it's the, the utility is uh, negated. So this is a good, this is a good sort of good tax policy provision to provide relief for people that need it. Um, the other piece is, uh, you know, under, under, under the old rules, there was a clear prohibition against any uh, monetary incentives from the employer to get people to participate in the plans. And so this would provide sort of a de minimis standard for, I call it the free toaster to participate in the 401k rule or the Apple gift card rule. Now employers can provide some incentive to get people to participate, you know, as in terms of like a raffle and, and the like. And, um, you know, obviously there's some guidance here about, you know, what can or cannot be done that people will want to know from the IRS that we don't have yet, but we'll, we'll uh, wait on it. So what may be done starting next year? And, and I think, you know, the, this is really a lot of the meat of this bill does kick in in 2024, um, just to give people like, you know, about a year window to sort of absorb the policies and to sort of create, you know, new, new products and the like to um, add on to the plan. So this first item is, is the student loan matching program. This is a, a pretty innovative idea, uh, very popular idea uh, that would, you know, allow for plan sponsors to provide some type of benefit for their employees to help them pay their student loans, but also stay for retirement. So the idea here is employee participants in the plan employees um, can sh uh, represent to the employer, hey, I paid X dollar amount in my student loans this year. And the employer can sort of say, okay, great. Um, I will match that uh, money uh, like on the employer contribution side into the 401k, you don't have to make any deferrals. You're making your student loan pay payments, but I'm, I'm, I'm still gonna give you retirement seed money because you're making those student loan payments. So that's, that, that's what this is. Um, and again, we, we're gonna need specific sort of guidance on, on you know, the details here, but there's a lot of record keepers you know, uh, that are really keen on offering this. And a lot of plan sponsors really want to offer, you know, new benefits to help defray student loan payments because they are, you know, particularly newer employees, existing employees, uh, college is getting uh, more and more expensive. There's just more and more student loan debt in general. And so how can employers help out with that? And so this is a piece of that um, of sort of leveraging the retirement system to encourage student loan payments, but also uh, have that employer contribution to be able to save for retirement. Um, the other sort of two big ideas here is emergency savings was another big theme in the Secure 2.0 bill. And this was really in the context of coming out of the pandemic. Um, there was, there was a, a, a clear need uh, for emergency savings due to the once in a hopefully lifetime for us. Uh, pandemic emergency and economies shut down for weeks on end. People need access to money. 
And so the, the idea is to try to figure out ways to leverage the, the retirement system to provide some of that safe, those safety valves for emergency savings. And so there's two, two main ideas here. The first one was, is this sort of universal hardship uh, distribution, which minimal paperwork, minimal you know, self-certification again, but, but you know, plan sponsors could starting next year, put this uh, feature into place to allow participants to take up to $1,000 for, for emergency expenses for you know, the, the, the car repair, the dishwasher repair, the you know, other appliances, things happen um, during the year, you might need some cash. This was just sort of like, hey, take it. Uh, and then, um, you know, there are guardrails here to not do f like uh, full sale leakage. But the idea here is if, if employees were aware of, hey, I could take up to $1,000 a year, um, you know, uh, basically excuse free, if you will, hey, I might actually start contributing to the plan now. Um, you know, if I was sort of hesitant before, well, now I can have some access to my money. So yeah, I'll go ahead and start making deferrals. So that so in a, in a way, this is sort of counterintuitive, but it might actually encourage uh, retirement plan participation, knowing that you know should an emergency uh, arise, you can get some access to cash. Uh, again, there's guardrails here. You have to um, you can't you, you can only take once once a year uh, up to a thousand dollars. You can't take it again unless you recontributed that amount back into the plan. Um, you know that clock resets after a three-year period, but there is restrictions on on here. But again, safety valve. Uh, the other idea is sort of a, a a broader idea, more complex idea, I think, on the plan sponsor side. But this would would uh, uh, allow for the plan sponsor to create separate accounts for emergency savings. They're after-tax accounts. Uh, you the employer must match. It's auto enrolled into these accounts, and the match must be made. But the matching contribution goes into the 401k plan, and uh, the maximum amount in these accounts is $2,500, only eligible for non-holly compensated workers. So again, more bells and whistles here than than the emergency um, than the universal uh, withdrawal option. But um, you know, some plan sponsors, you don't have to do any of these. You could do both. You could do one or the other. So. Um, all of this kicks in next year, and you know we're certainly anxious for guidance on, on, on the details here, so uh, companies could could sort of offer these uh, products to employers. What may be done next year? Um, cash outs sort of increase to seven thousand dollars. This is just sort of uh, a plan sponsor item where if you have a terminated employee that makes, you know, that has between $1,000 and $5,000 in the account, you can automatically roll that over into an IRA for that employee. That just increases that level to $7,000. Um, a new a new domestic abuse uh, hardship withdrawal for $10,000, up to $10,000. Uh, so that's that's a good provision for, you know, individuals in, in sort of a fraught situation and they need some cash for to get out of that. Um, also, the third item here is just discretionary amendments. Um, so if you're an employer or small business and you're, you're doing your taxes and you have a really good year and you want to uh, put more money towards your employees in the retirement plan, you could do so retroactively for the prior year through a discretionary amendment. Um, Secure 1.0 had a, had a provision 
allowing for retroactive plan adoption for the prior year too, which is, you know, another good small business provision that they'll have and would encourage plan adoption. So this just, this just sort of furthers that concept too for existing plans that want to uh, retroactively increase benefits. And then the fi final piece here is just the auto portability. Um, this is uh, what I like to call, what I envision is fixing the plumbing of the system and getting record keepers to talk to each other and having, you know, I think a theme here is automating enrollment, uh, automate, automating the whole system makes it better. Uh, automating and, you know, I think over time, the industry has done good jobs of, of, of creating automated features for enrollment, but we've, we've done a less good job of automating uh, the savings to follow the, the worker throughout the, his or her working career as they, as you know, uh, they change jobs and, and the like. And so, you know, that's a huge source of leakage. That's the biggest source of leakage is cashing out uh, during job change. And so this is a way to fix that problem, get the record keepers to communicate to one another and have the retirement money follow the worker from 401k plan A to 401k plan B to 401k plan C uh, seamlessly. Uh, and so that, you know, uh, has the, the potential to really increase uh, uh, retirement savings throughout the course of the uh, a working career. So what may be done starting in 25 uh, is, uh, you know, catch up, catch up contributions have to be Roth now, but for certain age groups, uh, Congress threw a little bit of a, a fig leaf and said, well, you know, if you're between the ages of 60 and 63, now your catch up contribution limits can be, will be doubled. So that's a that's a good sort of uh, provision for for folks that you know can so so they can juice up their retirement savings before retirement. Great, thanks, Andy. So we're going to bring the audience to our third and final polling question um, before we go into the final content of today's presentation. So please take a moment to answer the question if you've learned a few key takeaways that you'll be bringing back to your own organization or your clients' organizations, whatever that may be, yes, no, unsure. Great, let's see what the results, oh look. Great, 88% of you have um, learned something that you'll be bringing back, so that's wonderful. Um, and we're going to flip over back to Andy on the last couple of um, pieces of info we have for you. Yeah, so this is this doesn't kick into 2027, but this sort of revolutionizes the Savers uh, credit. And it, Savers credit right now is sort of underused. Nobody knows what it, you know, I mean, it, it only applies to a very select few of individuals. You have to have taxable income. Uh, but turning this uh, into a savers match makes makes sort of a, like a, the credit refundable, if you will. Uh, so it broadens the uh, availability of the credit to like tens of millions of more people. Um, and and now it's a government match. So you can save up to two thousand dollars and you're going to get a government matching contribution um, of a thousand dollars. If you're in the if you're in this, uh, you know, if you make between forty thousand dollars and seventy one thousand uh, dollars joint filers. Um, and so that this is, you know, we're, this was a big revenue loss too, because 
now we're having the government basically subsidize everybody's retirement savings, particularly on the lower end. So in terms of, you know, some of the criticisms you hear of the system is that, well, 401ks, they're only for rich people, but they're actually not for the working person. Uh, you know, all the tax benefits are skewed to the wealthy because it's deduction, not a credit. So this is, this is a way of, of um, targeting retirement incentives more towards the moderate income earners uh, to, to basically um, make the system more equi equitable, if you will, in terms of and, and benefit, uh, you know, working people uh, and have them really have uh, a nest egg too. So uh, all good things, uh, but unfortunately it doesn't kick in for an eternity. So, uh, but there's, there's a ton of details on this that need to be ironed out too. So it's a good to have a long runway to make sure this works well. So anyway, so uh, if you were to uh, you know, go to the American Retirement Association's website, araadvocacy.org, um, and sort of click on, and there's a PDF sort of document too for you to click on as you get the, these slides. But we have a handy dandy chart that um, had lists all the provisions and their effective dates and sort of in, in chronological order. So you can sort of order your operations, if you will, uh, and make sure you're Good to go with Secure 2.0. Yeah, and so everyone who gets uh, these slides, um, or these will be on our website, like Andy mentioned, you can actually just access that chart um, within this document, just double click on the PDF. It's really well laid out, really easy to navigate um, what those changes are. So we do encourage you to download those and um, keep them on file somewhere for future reference, I think. Almost everyone will probably need them. So. And if you're, you know, um, into retirement policy and you're an HR professional and you want to become that expert within your organization, differentiate yourself, uh, you know, within your organization as the retirement plan geek, we have a plan sponsor certification educational credential for you. So just click on that website uh, and find out more. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer and Andy. Some great information there. We, we really appreciate it. Uh, looks like we have a few minutes uh, left. So there are a few questions that came in that, that I'll go ahead and present to you all. Uh, the first one is for the auto enrollment feature. Will this apply to new employees or all employees when it goes into effect? Um, and what about part-time employees? Yeah, well, obviously this is going to be subject to specific guidance, but um, I think the assumption is it would it would the automatic enrollment would apply to you know all all, all eligible participants. Um, I think that's a fair fair way to think about it, including including part time workers. So you don't like you know for the part time worker piece, as Jen mentioned, you can disaggregate them for testing purposes. And you could just, and you, you know, for top heavy testing as well, which is sort of a key piece of the guidance that we're, that we're going to need. Um, but you have to make them eligible to defer, but that you don't have to, uh, you know, unless, unless you want to, uh, you don't have to, uh, you know, give them a match or, or a non elective contribution on the employer side. If, Jen, do you have anything to add there? No, but Andrew, we did have, um, 
uh, question come in um, just a second ago that I want to address. Um, as we're talking about, I guess I'm switching to the, the part-time employees um, uh, being enrolled. You know, someone asked, would this apply to seasonal employees? Um, and just so, you know, my interpretation of the guidance while seasonal, they're still part-time. Um, and so, the you know, as long as any employee has over that 500 yeah. hour threshold, it would include seasonal or periodic, whatever you call them. But it's um, it's defined by the hours, and so I would use that as the basis. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, you have to you have to track hours for everybody, yeah. and um, I mean that's really the that's the way ERISA ERISA doesn't really uh, you know the classifications of employees is is sort of irrelevant. It's it's really like how many hours that you are in service to the employer exactly. is the, is the bedrock standard under ERISA. Yep. All right. Another question is related to the forced cashed out limit of $7,000. Is that mandatory? Yeah, they, in terms of cash outs, it's not. I mean, plan sponsors can keep all the amounts of money in, in the end of the plan if they want to. I think a lot of plan sponsors, you know, there's costs to that. You have to record keep mm -hmm. that. You have to administer that, make sure, you know, um, you know, that's invested properly. And so I think there's a desire amongst most plan sponsors to, particularly amongst terminated employees, if they're, if they're sort of orphans, if they're, if they're gone, they can't, they can't contact them to be able to sort of get that money out of the plan and get that into an IRA, which um, I will say for the retirement loss and found uh, piece, um, yeah, there are going to be new reporting requirements on the on the plan sponsor to um, ensure that the information is correct for the lost and found. So that's going to be a burden on the plan sponsor. You know, whenever that whenever that becomes effective, I think it's in a couple of years. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind too. Uh, but um, maybe more people will become familiar with the Department of Labor when when there's all these orphaned 401k accounts housed in this in this database, or at least that information is housed in that database. So, uh, so, but yeah, I mean, there, you know, DOL in order to make that workable is going to need information from from you know a lot of plan sponsors in order to be able to track them. Uh, should some should, should a should an orphaned participant, which is like a term of art, just um, uh, you know, come calling to DOL and say, where's my money? So, Yeah. And, you know, that force out where we see that a lot, you know, in the plans, particularly, um, you know, if you want to hang out with GRF as your auditor some more, you know, having those participants in there uh, count towards your participant count. And so, you know, if you're trying yeah. to avoid that audit, um, you know, that's a good provision to put in place. Um, because it will reduce that participant count for purposes of that hundred threshold in the audit. Um, yeah. so we see that come up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. I think we probably have time for one more question. Uh, this one's related to the student loan repayment matching piece. Uh, would this match be in addition to the match that's already being made? No. Mm -mm. So whatever the whatever the current matching situation is, it would it would just apply to more people, people that aren't deferring, but can show that they're paying student loans. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. One more, Andrew. All right. For the Roth catch-up contributions, what if your current plan does not offer a Roth option? Well, you don't have to, but then you don't, you can't do catch-ups. So yeah. that, that's an option. Um, but if you're going to, uh, if you, another question is, I think on the, to you, if, if you don't want to have to deal with the 145 threshold, because people under can make pre-tax people over have to do Roth. If you want to just uh, require everybody to do Roth, nothing's prohibiting that from happening either. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an, that's, that's an option too, to sort of be, make it easier on the plan sponsor to implement. Yeah, but it, I mean, if you don't have a Roth option, then anyone making over 145 would not be able to contribute catch-up contributions. So you have sure. to have the option in order for them to continue catch up. So if they're currently, yep. you know, making those catch up contributions now, pre-tax, you know, that benefit would go away to them. Um, and so that's, you know, a big consideration for employers and communication with the, their employees and what what you all would want to consider. But I think that's, uh, yeah. As and, the, and the worst case scenario is if the, this technical issue isn't addressed, whether it's through treasury or from the Hill by the end of the year, uh, nobody, nobody will be able to make catch up, com- catch up conversation, yeah. you know, next year. So I mean, that would, that would truly be, uh, um, a kerfluffle, if you will. Well, ending on kerfluffle, um, no, we thank you all, uh, for joining us and thank you again to Andy for his expertise and all of this. Um, you know, we're really thankful to have the insights of what's actually going on and having the pulse and the what's going on um, out there. So thank you for joining us and thank you to everyone. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you for listening to the GRF on the Co podcast. Visit our website at grfcpa.com for more information about the services we provide, the industries we serve, or to request a quote.